Hello, I'm Lucy, and in this episode of Footnoting History, I'll be discussing the political agency, magical experiments, and strange afterlives of Dr. John Dee. The myth of John Dee has always, in part through his own design, overshadowed his history. I put dibs on this podcast subject when it was suggested to us by an anonymous listener, so thanks to that listener, and I hope the results are satisfying. John Dee, Renaissance polymath, legendary book collector, and court astrologer to Elizabeth I, may seem an unlikely subject for a footnote in history. Entire books have been devoted to him. Still, he remains a difficult and oddly obscure subject of study. What I want to do in this podcast is to sift through fact and fiction, to put Dee's extraordinary life and career in context, and to look at how myths can become accepted as history. In the words of one scholar, quote, In spite of the numerous monographs and studies of the prolific Dee industry, the factual biography of the Elizabethan occult philosopher has been relatively neglected, unquote. The same reviewer goes on to describe works on Dr. D as highly speculative and lightly documented. This is academic shade-throwing of a not particularly subtle variety. Historiography has placed Dr. D variously as part of the scientific revolution and as part of, quote, magical exaltation through powerful signs, unquote. That is literally an academic subtitle, a fact which brings me disproportionate joy. It is quite possible to see John Dee as both a scientist and a magician. His work on alchemy and astronomy was influential for over a century after his death, and notably, he himself saw alchemy as itself a kind of astronomy. Dee's personal myth was well launched even before his death. Contemporaries thought he might be a reincarnation of Merlin. His legend only grew posthumously, beginning with a paper by the 17th century scientist Robert Hooke that suggests that Enochian, Dee's angelic language, was actually a cipher he used to send secret political information back to England from the court of Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor in Prague. One particularly durable claim is that Dee originated the use of 007 as a personal identifier in espionage, and I regret very much to say that this is not, in fact, true. But back to Robert Hooke. Hooke is one of the chief luminaries of the scientific revolution, responsible for demonstrating the law of elasticity, for introducing the word cell into English, and for drawing it, a student of astronomy, a professor of geometry, curator of experiments for the Royal Society, the list goes on. And as I discovered while doing research for this podcast, Hook was also a student of Dee's work, including angelic languages. The boundaries between science and magic, when Hook was writing in the late 17th century, and certainly when Dee was working in the late 16th, could be porous and difficult to define. Dee lived in a time that has often been labelled, with reference to Western history, as an age of discovery. 
It was indeed an age of increasing global connections and rapidly increasing global knowledge about the natural world, including, thanks to technology, about parts of it previously inaccessible. So people are studying planets and fossils, and it's all very exciting, and an obvious question to John Dee and his contemporaries was, why not apply these principles of investigation to the supernatural world? Western beliefs about the supernatural, relevantly, were rapidly changing too. That can be blamed in large part on the Protestants. Among Dee's many goals appears to have been overcoming the deep confessional divides of Elizabethan England through what Margaret Healy has called a regenerative spiritual alchemy. His communications with angels were conducted, at least in part, via a holy artifact of the Aztecs, an obsidian disc now held in the British Museum, commemorated after Dee's death variously either as merely a magic mirror or as the devil's looking glass. This material object is, to me, a fascinating example of how new information about the world could be used in attempts to learn more about the otherworldly. For John Dee and for his contemporaries, the lines between the plausible and the implausible, the reasonable and the unreasonable, were not drawn in the places that the 20th and 21st centuries expect to find them. Even today, though, it's possible to find websites earnestly informing the world that Dee personally hexed the Spanish Armada, thereby causing its spectacular failure. Make of that what you will. John Dee was not only involved in Elizabethan politics, although not including a hex on the Spanish Armada, but also in bitter feuds among rival magicians, which influenced his career not inconsiderably. Glyn Perry's influential biography of Dee contains the amazing chapter title, War Amongst the Alchemists. Dee lived during a time when attitudes towards magic and magicians were changing and were intimately and dangerously tied up with politics. Reminder that Elizabeth's own mother, Anne Boleyn, had been accused of practicing magic against the king. Dee was both a practitioner of magic and, it would seem, a convinced Protestant, another allegiance with, of course, profound political implications. This identity could also help him to defend himself against accusations of practicing dark magic. He was accused, for instance, of being the arch-conjurer of England, an accusation refigured into the title of one of his biographical studies. Georgi Schönyi has persuasively argued that it was one of the characteristics of magical study to carry multiple and sometimes self-contradicting meanings, and that this discipline, even if it looks at the distance of four or five centuries like a gallery of broken dreams, helped to shape the distinctive worldview of the early modern period in the West. Deborah Harkness has provided one of the most complete and cohesive studies of Dee's work, and one that strives to present this work as itself, however eclectic, forming a more or less cohesive whole. This can present a challenge. Historians have a lot of evidence about John Dee. In some senses, we have too much. An early biography of Dee was included in Vitae Quarundam Eruditissimorum et Illustrium Virorum, i.e. the lives of some very learned and illustrious men. His first modern biographer, Charlotte Fell Smith, begins her 1909 work by expressing astonishment that no one else had undertaken such a project, 
concerning, quote, an individual so conspicuous, so debatable, and so remarkably picturesque, unquote. The scholarship has been a flourishing field in its own right for several decades now. As noted above, it's even been described as an industry. But Dee himself remains an elusive subject, despite the painstaking work of scholars to reconstruct his intellectual world and place his remarkable career in context. While voluminous, the evidence from Dee's life is also fragmentary. His vast library is a case in point. His library has given rise not only to several intellectual biographies of Dee, but also to the hypothesis that, at one point, Dee owned the Voynich Manuscript. This hypothesis is treated in some places as myth, in others as fact. As a historian, I know the importance of careful attribution, but also the value of information, potentially, that is sometimes passed on without footnotes. I confess that I found it tempting to contemplate the possibility that John Dee, this energetic and eccentric scholar, held in his possession the world's most mysterious manuscript, thought by some to be an attempt at compiling the universal knowledge that Dee himself sought. It would seem, however, that Voynich, the manuscript's early 20th century owner, disingenuously created a false connection between sources, chiefly letters by Dee's son Arthur, in order to give credence to such a suggestion. The remainder of Dee's library is astonishing enough in its own right. It is both vast and eclectic. As Alex Wright has observed, scholars have often chosen to focus, quote, on the parts of the collection that will prove their particular characterization of Dee, be it occultist or scientist, unquote. Was John Dee flexible and dispassionate? Deliberately secretive or both? Georgi Shunyi suggests that Renaissance magic, as practiced by Dr. D, may be itself understood as a branch of the sciences, a field of study with its own rules, certainly, but connected to other branches of study. Astronomy, astrology, the study of ancient literature, the study of the natural world, all of which were active in the 16th century. And when it comes to academic fields of the 16th century, it seems that there's scarcely one that D himself wasn't involved in. He read and compiled, for instance, medieval literature, although he was careful to qualify it as ancient and thus respectable, rather than medieval and thus outdated and potentially dangerous. Dee was an avid book collector and an enthusiastic annotator and cross-referencer, a voracious reader concerned with both the content and the materiality of his books. Although the dismemberment of his library has sometimes been attributed to a superstitious mob, its dispersal is probably due to a combination of unscrupulous acquaintances profiting from Dee's absence in continental Europe, and book dealers collecting on debts. Dee's diary reveals that he was an inveterate borrower of money. Deborah Harkness has both done valuable scholarly work on Dee's library, as mentioned above, and written him into a fictional version of Elizabethan history that also features witches, demons, and vampires. John Dee's fictional afterlives might be a subject in themselves. He appears not only in Harkness' All Souls trilogy, but in a number of works which are, to put it mildly, less well-researched. In a standalone novel, The Bones of Avalon, he appears as astrologer, is consulted by William Cecil, so spy myth check, 
and ends up teaming with Robert Dudley, no less, powerful nobleman and Queen Elizabeth's rumored lover, in order to retrieve the bones of King Arthur. I'm not even kidding. There's also a trilogy of young adult novels in which, and I quote from the publisher's description, uh, while working at pleasant but mundane summer jobs in San Francisco, 15-year-old twins Sophie and Josh suddenly find themselves caught up in the deadly, centuries-old struggle between rival alchemists Nicholas Flamel and John Dee over the possession of an ancient and powerful book holding the secret formulas for alchemy and everlasting life. Uh, unquote. For Harry Potter fans, yes, that Nicholas Flamel. He's everywhere. The Harkness novels are the only ones of these I've read. Uh, shout out to Alex Wright, medievalist and librarian in training, for recommending them. In the case of the others, I feel as though anything that actually happens in the books might fall short of my expectations. So if you have read them, gentle listeners, please do let me know. John Dee on a mission to find King Arthur's bones is in fact less historically implausible than it might appear at first glance. Dee himself referred to his investigations into Arthur as part of a, quote, British discovery and recovery enterprise, unquote, a part of the process by which Elizabeth could both build and justify her empire. Dee is, in fact, credited with coining the phrase British Empire. He also recommended the establishment of a British navy, an idea which he described as having, quote, graciously streamed down into his imagination, unquote, here, as in the question of empire, Dee referred to Britain's medieval past. Dee was fond of representing himself as a lone magician. In the 16th century, the tropes of how magicians should behave in order to be properly, impressively mysterious were already set, but also described himself as a, quote, careful, expert, and faithful politician subject, unquote, of Queen Elizabeth. Dee astrologically confirmed that the date of Elizabeth's coronation was auspicious, and his claims of ancient authority for her territorial rights made him influential in imperial politics. Dr. Dee was many things. An antiquarian, a mapmaker, a mathematician, a historian, a prophet, a student of theology and law, a scholarly skimmer of Kabbalah, a practitioner of medicine. He was even a creator of stage effects for a Trinity College dramatic production while at Cambridge University. In the words of Deborah Harkness, Dee was, quote, England's most highly regarded natural philosopher who talked with angels about the natural world and its apocalyptic end, unquote. Sadly, many of the pages of Dr. Dee's angel diaries were used to line pie plates, but scholars tend to the conclusion that they would be scarcely less puzzling if extant in their entirety. People have always played up to what Charlotte Fell Smith calls John Dee's picturesqueness. The preface to the 1842 edition of his private diary, for instance, describes it as, quote, written in a very small, illegible hand on the margins of old almanacs, unquote, and tantalizingly hints that its publication may help to set Dee's character in its true light. A lot of the diary, though, is just notes on the birth of people whose horoscopes Dee was consulted on. It's also a hilarious mixture of the mundane and the mysterious. For example, quote, I hired Walter Hooper to keep my hedges in good order, unquote, and I understood more of Vincent Murphy his neighbory, unquote. When Dee says, I understood in the diary, he's referring to insights gained through magical study and insight. He discusses such matters as consulting on an illness of the queen, 
almost in the same sentence as recording that his cat caught a one-winged sparrow. Poor sparrow. He also records the weather, whether simply great wind southwest, close, cloudy, or showers of rain and hail. He uses his knowledge of science to practice home remedies, for example, putting oil of St. John's wort on his hand after falling on it at nine in the morning, as he recorded. In the same fashion, he records connections with Persia and conversations with the Queen, in one telling her she was entitled to Greenland, as well as to Friesland, part of Germany, because King Arthur had conquered it. He also dreamt of mysterious Latin inscriptions on his own skin. The more I read of John Dee's own words, the more mysterious and intriguing he becomes. Family history gives an account of his last days intriguingly mingling the political, the arcane, and the homely. The source of the stories, a woman known only as Old Goodwife Faldo, reported that in John Dee's last days he entertained the ambassador of Poland and showed this ambassador the eclipse in a dark room. Goodwife Faldo also reports that Dr. Dee calmed storms and kept a great many stills, presumably for magical and alchemical potions. His reputation within the community of which he was a part appears to have been divided. Because he was known as a magician, children were frightened of him. On the other hand, he once used his magical powers to recover a lost laundry basket, a feat recalled with affection and gratitude for generations. The elements of Goodwife Faldo's memories are scarcely less incongruously mixed than those in Dee's own work, and in some of the scholarship on it. N.H. Cluley has described Dee's Monas Hieroglyphica, his attempt at establishing universal knowledge, as giving, quote, idiosyncratic twists to a number of very common themes in intellectual fashion during the Renaissance, unquote. Really, this seems to me a fair way to describe his output and career, all providing idiosyncratic twists on our image of the Renaissance polymath or of the devotee of magic. Dee himself aspired to speak of, quote, all things, visible and invisible, manifest and most occult, emanating by nature or art from God himself, unquote. He strove to create nothing less than a universal alchemy. In view of such wide-ranging and comprehensive ambition, it may be no surprise that John Dee himself has proved so fascinating and elusive a subject of research. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.